0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. A new book details a five-year cold case investigation that claims to solve a decades-old mystery, who betrayed Anne Frank. And researchers find the likely cause of multiple sclerosis, a disease that affects nearly three million people around the world. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The pandemic is delaying retirement for many Zoomers and it's not always for the usual reasons. Financial advisors report that clients with plans in place and enough money to stop working are asking themselves... Why retire now when I can't do anything? According to the 2021 Fidelity Retirement Report, the pandemic has led one in five pre-retirees to delay retirement further than planned. 56% are worried about the rising cost of living, 53% aren't sure they have enough savings, and 30% say they're afraid they'll simply be bored. Many Zoomers are hesitant about embracing cryptocurrency, but not New York's new 61-year-old mayor. Eric Adams announced he would take his first three paychecks in Bitcoin, the first of which arrived Friday. He has signaled his intention to make his city the center of the cryptocurrency industry an unusual honor for Zoomer actor Jeff Daniels. A newly discovered species of tarantula-killing worm has been named after him. Tarantobelis, Jeff Danielsy was discovered by scientists at the University of California, Riverside. It's one of more than 20,000 nematode species, but only the second one that infects tarantulas. It's a nod to Daniels' role as Dr. Ross Jennings in the 1990 film Arachnophobia. Many Canadians will remember learning to swim from the Red Cross. The organization's swim and lifeguard programming started in 1946 in an effort to curb the 1,000 deaths from drowning recorded each year. That number has now been cut in half while the country's population has tripled and 40 million people participated in this training. But now the Red Cross has announced it will wind down that service by December of this year. I'm Libby Snymer and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A new book details how a cold case team brought modern investigative techniques to a decades-old Holocaust mystery who betrayed Anne Frank and her family. The project took nearly five years and used artificial intelligence in addition to more than 20 people and dozens of consultants. I talked with Canadian author Rosemary Sullivan about the betrayal of Anne Frank, a cold case investigation. Why is it important to know the identity of the person that betrayed Anne Frank and her family?
2: The investigation was begun by two Dutchmen, one, Ties Byens, a filmmaker, and the other, Peter Van Twisk, a journalist. And for them, the um, search for the betrayer was a vehicle to explore what went on in, in Amsterdam and the Netherlands at large, during the Second World War, because there were so many unanswered and, frankly, unfaced questions.
1: The Netherlands was perceived uh, as a place where there wasn't much prejudice, but uh, the largest percentage, the largest number of Jews uh, were deported from there to concentration camps uh, than in other European countries.
2: What happened, and this was a particular preoccupation for Peter Van Twisk. He felt it, was, it had never been answered. The issue was much more complicated than simple anti-Semitism. It was the very structure of uh, the Dutch society in these silos where, you know, the Catholics, the Protestants, the liberals, the socialists all had their own schools, universities, businesses, etc., and didn't look after each other, didn't molest each other either, but... Nobody was watching the uh, idea that um, the identity cards, so the kind of information people collected on, on uh, Dutch citizens was astonishing and perhaps only matched by German ingenuity when it comes to documentation. So it was very easy for the Nazis to, to lay claim to those um, identity papers.
1: There were two previous investigations into that question, who betrayed the Frank family, in uh, 1947 and 1963. What happened with those?
2: The first one uh, was at the insistence of Otto Frank and uh, his two, two of the people who helped to hide him, uh, Kleiman and uh, Kugler, and uh, they focused entirely on one person who was in fact the person that Otto and the other uh, helpers felt was the uh, perpetrator. And this was the warehouse man, Willem uh, van Maren. Uh, But uh, after a brief um, uh, investigation focused only on him, uh, he was uh, exonerated. Then in 1963, there was a second um, investigation. The detective van Helden did do a a fairly thorough 120-page report. But again, it focused on... Uh, the warehouse man, and on two other people who worked in the warehouse, and so it was very narrow.
1: The investigation that resulted in this book, uh, it was pulled together. It had a lot of people with a former FBI investigator at the helm, and it also used some very modern methods.
2: So they turned to Vince Pankoke, who had a loose connection to the uh, Netherlands. He was a special agent, um, retired, of the FBI, who had worked on everything from Colombian drug raids to corruption on Wall Street. And when he was asked, he said yes. He was very interested in this whole project. And so uh, what Vince could bring to the investigation was it would move beyond historical research. Into uh, the techniques of um, investigation, so they would dis- they would want to find suspects who uh, were in some way related to the raid. The whole thing really got underway when uh, Vince began to involve um, artificial intelligence, and they. Uh, Poured information into that database, um, which had been collected by this team, which uh, of researchers. The cold case team at one point was about 23 people, and they had uploaded that database onto a plat an AI an artificial intelligence platform, and suddenly they could cross reference and find connection between people, addresses, dates, policemen. Who was on a raid? What policemen were with? With what other policemen?
1: They got it down to 12 suspects. Where did it go from there?
2: Then you go from uh, suspect to suspect, all those 12 suspects looking at whether they had knowledge, motive, and opportunity. And in the end, 11 of them were eliminated, and the one suspect that came forward uh, wasn't uh, brought forward by the team. He was named in in an anonymous note that Otto Frank received Uh, When he returned from Auschwitz alone without his family, devastated, here was this uh, anonymous note waiting for him, and the anonymous note said, your address was um, delivered to the SD uh, by Arnold Vandenberg. Other addresses were also turned over. So the note was forensically tested. Then the question was, why would and how would Van um, uh, Vandenberg be able to give a list of names as a way of protecting himself against the uh, Nazi menace?
1: The evidence is that that Otto Frank knew, so why would Otto Frank want to keep it a secret?
2: When um, asked, Miepke said um, that Otto told her that he did not want to bring damage on the children of the man who had betrayed them.
1: But the big reason, apparently, was that the betrayer was Jewish.
2: There was certainly concern that it would be painful to the Jewish community to identify a fellow Jew, that it might be used horrifically by uh, anti-Semitic forces of the far right. But in the end, it also shows... You know that that it is it is a matter of uh, of truth telling, and uh, in, and when you think about it, it's Otto Frank's capacity for forgiveness. This was a portrait of a man cornered, and what he was looking at was the possibility that he, his wife, and maybe even his children, who though they were in hiding by uh, resistance workers, there was no no guarantee of uh, that lasting. Going to extermination camps, gas chambers, inconceivable. And when you put it, you know, when you think about it, how can one judge a man who makes that kind of choice to
1: protect his children? Rosemary Sullivan, fascinating book. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you, Libby. Rosemary Sullivan's new book, The Betrayal of Anne Frank, has caused something of a sensation, but a number of Dutch Holocaust historians dispute its findings. The book concludes that as a member of the Jewish council, Vandenberg handed over a list of places where Jews were hiding. But the council was disbanded a year before the Franks were discovered, and the historians say its members would not have had any such list anyway. zimer and this is the zoomer week in review coming up solving the mystery of multiple sclerosis
0: you're listening to the zoomer week in review brought to you by carp helping you unlock money you didn't know you had members only discounts that can save you tons find out more at carp.ca
1: It's a hypothesis that's been investigated for years, but now for the first time, there is compelling evidence that multiple sclerosis is caused by the Epstein-Barr virus. It's a difficult connection because while 95% of us have been infected by Epstein-Barr MS is a relatively rare inflammatory disease of the central nervous system. I reached Dr. Cassandra Munger, co-author of the paper and director of multiple sclerosis studies at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. The Epstein-Barr virus has long been suspected as being related to multiple sclerosis. So how did this suspicion start? Like, take me back, please.
3: For a long time, um, it, it has been hypothesized that some infectious agent was a cause of MS, even dating back to like the early 1900s when germ theory was, you know, first gaining some traction. And Epstein-Barr virus specifically, in the early 80s, people were starting to note that there were similarities in um, patterns of how infectious mononucleosis um, occurred and then how MS also occurred. And so those are really the first um, suggestions that EBV itself may, um, may play a role in MS.
1: Now, just to explain a little more about EBV, it's, it's the virus that causes mono.
3: Correct, yes. So the majority of infections in, in many populations um, with EBV occur in early life. So um, as, you know, infants or toddlers when you're maybe, you know, um, chewing on the same toy that another child just chewed on, EBV is easily passed through um, saliva. Um, if you uh, did not become infected with EBV through uh, those sorts of routes when you were younger, you could remain EBV negative up until you know adolescent or young adulthood, um, where when we see um, adolescents perhaps um, sharing a little bit more, um, of course, many people may know mono as the kissing disease, um, in that time frame, especially when, uh, people are, or, or, adolescents and young adults are, um, entering new cohorts and new groups, such as going off to university or joining the military, for example. So those are, you know, two big, um, uh, times in life when an EBV infection, a primary EBV infection can occur. And, in about half of the people who um, have their first EBV infection in that age range, they will develop infectious mononucleosis.
1: What is the theory about how and when that would trigger MS?
3: Um, one idea is that the uh, antibodies that the immune system will um, uh, will create to control the EBV infection, um, may also recognize some of the proteins in the brain and spinal cord, um, especially of the myelin sheaths that surround the axons that are damaged in multiple sclerosis. But We also know that, you know, EBV um, establishes a lifelong infection in B-cells. It will be a latent virus, um, but that can be reactivated by certain um, triggers. And there could be something with the B-cells. We've we've, um, seen research where um, EBV-infected B-cells have been found in uh, lesions of the MS brain, for example.
1: So you established this connection with a large study, uh, of people in the military. Tell me about that.
3: EBV infection is so prevalent. We really needed a large population to identify that about 5% of people who are EBV negative. Um, so people who have just entered the military, for example, we would expect probably around 5% or so of them to still be EBV negative. Um, so we took advantage of the, um, the large cohort that is the U.S. military, um, they have serum samples that are collected on all active duty members um, repeatedly over time during their duty. And um, we were able to identify in that large population of about 10 million people, um, a cohort that were EBV negative, And they had multiple blood samples. So we were able to um, measure their EBV antibodies after that EBV negative sample to see if and when they became EBV positive. And, and then we followed those people um, up for a diagnosis of MS. And so we found in our um, in our cohort there were um, we had 801 MS cases that we were able to look at and all but one of those cases did uh, become EBV-positive prior to their date of symptom onset with MS. Um, and when we compared them to people who remained EBV-negative, um, there was a 32-fold increased risk of developing MS with that first EBV infection occurring at that time in life, so in young, um, young adult life.
1: Bottom line, what does this mean for people with MS?
3: There are vaccines that are in development um, uh, as well. You may be aware that you know Moderna just began a few weeks ago their first uh, trial of an EBV vaccine that they have. So we are currently looking at you know the real possibility that in the next you know three to five years or so we may not only be able to prevent. MS from occurring, um, but maybe also treat people with an EBV-targeted drug.
1: Dr. Cassandra Munger, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Cassandra Munger of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Zneimer.